The text for the sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 23, the verses 15 through 18. I'll read those verses once again. This is the word of God. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. Thus far our text. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the person of, of Jonathan is often overlooked as we consider the history of redemption, as we, as we look at what God has done in saving his people. He's overshadowed by his father and by his friend. He is the son of Saul, he is the friend of David. And so when we, we think about what God has done in history, we will think of Saul and we will think of David. But we sort of pass over, over Jonathan. But the Lord did great things with Jonathan. He used Jonathan. Our text this morning actually marks the last time that we hear Jonathan speak in Scripture. The next time we hear about Jonathan, he lies dead with his father and his brothers on Mount Gilboa. Now the first time that we hear from Jonathan is in 1 Samuel 13 and 14. It's an incredible story about how the Lord used Jonathan to deliver Israel. It's a beautiful story. It might be something to read at lunch. Jonathan and his armor bearer climb a cliff and defeat a Philistine outpost, and, and then a huge victory is worked for the Israelites. The Lord creates an earthquake, and, and the Philistines start fighting against themselves. The Lord there used Jonathan, and there Jonathan showed that he was a man after the Lord's heart. That he was not like his father, but he was more like the friend that he would meet. Now much has happened to Jonathan and to Israel in the time since he had climbed those cliffs at Michmash. And it all revolves around that, that friend, that young shepherd boy named David. The man that the Lord appointed to be king, the man after the Lord's heart, has arrived on the scene. Now these two men, Jonathan and David, they meet and they form an incredible friendship. It's a friendship that's so strong that even non-Christians can link the two. They will be able to tell you that there is David and Goliath. And then they will be able to tell you there is David and Jonathan. 
Now the main focus in 1 Samuel from chapter 17 onward is largely on David. The young shepherd boy from Bethlehem has been anointed king by Samuel. He's played the harp for Saul. He's killed Goliath. He's formed a strong friendship with the king's son, Jonathan. He's married the king's daughter, Michael. He's ascended the ranks of the Israelite military, and he's become a popular hero in Israel. However, at the same time, Saul has recognized and realized that David is a threat to his throne. The threat that he knew would come. And he is bent on killing David. Now our text of this morning comes close to the beginning of Saul's pursuits of David. And it is at this particular time that David receives a visit from his friend Jonathan, the son of Saul. So let us hear the good news as we find it in 1 Samuel 23, the verses 15 through 18. And I bring you the word of God this morning as we, uh, uh, under the following theme. In the midst of trials, the Lord sends Jonathan to help David find strength in God. And we will see three things. The need for the strengthening, the means of the strengthening, and the content of the strengthening. So in the first place then, the need for the strengthening. Now our entire text, each verse, speaks to David's need for strengthening. And it begins with his location. In verse 15, we're told that David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph. Now, Horish means forest. And it appears that David and his 600 men had some type of of forest hideout in, in these highland forests about 30 kilometers south of Jerusalem. And it's while hiding here in Horish, our text tells us, that David learns that Saul had come out to take his life. Now, we need to appreciate what this meant to David. In verse 3, before our text, when David is acting with the Lord's guidance and decides to attack the Philistines, and save the people of Keilah. His men say to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? His men are saying, Here, here in the friendly confines of Judah, David, your, your home tribe, we are afraid. And now you want us to go to Keilah a city that's actually overrun by the Philistines. The stories that we often remember of David running from Saul are not so much the running, but the eluding, the escaping. We must not forget that David and his men lived in fear. They were in hiding and they were on the run continually. We just sang Psalm 18 a few moments ago. This this was a psalm that David wrote with with this time in his mind. And there he writes in verse 4 and 5, The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. 
The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. And then in verse 16 and 17, he says, He reached down from on high and and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. We must not forget the trials that David had to endure. And that David and his men should be afraid is is highlighted by two events that precede our text. The first event is is in 1 Samuel 22. And this is where Saul kills all of the priests of the Lord for helping David. Now this is, this is incredibly important. The, the battle lines are being clearly drawn. Saul is bent on resisting God's plan of redemption. He knows from Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, that God has chosen someone else to be king after him, to be king in his place. And Saul is now showing that he will go through whatever lengths necessary to stop that from happening. It is the present false king against the future true king. And and this future true king is shown in direct contrast to Saul. While Saul kills the priests, the sole remaining priest, Abiathar, comes to David for protection. And the Lord speaks to David through the priest. And in 1 Samuel 22, verse 5, we hear that the prophet Gad brings the word of the Lord to David. So David is on the run, but the Lord is with him and speaks to him through the priest and the prophet. And Saul does not have the Lord with him. And the Lord does not, refuses to speak to Saul. Yet he is is so deluded that he identifies his interests with God's interests. Opposition to Saul deserves death. Even if you are a priest serving in the tabernacle, even if you are the one appointed and anointed by God to be king. Now, we can't help but think here of the Jewish leaders during the time when our our Lord Jesus lived on earth. They wished to preserve their place and their station. And they ignored all of the signs that pointed to the Lord Jesus being the Christ. They wished to preserve their present false kingdom over against Christ's coming true kingdom. And this is what we have with Saul. He is bent on eliminating David, God's man, because he is a threat to his throne. So the killing of the priests signifies an intensification of the battle. Saul's resistance to God's program of redemption is intensifying. It's increasing. The battle is hot and it's only going to get hotter. David is afraid. Now the second event is the experience that David and his men experienced at at Keilah. And this was another disappointment and it only added to David's fear. David rescues the city of Keilah. 
But then Saul comes after David and he plans to destroy the city to get to David. Now David learns of this in verse 12 and we read, David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So, so not only is David on the run, but he cannot even count on the support and loyalty of a people he has just saved. David and his men, they leave Keilah and they head to the highland forests of Horish. But even there, our text tells us, they hear that Saul is still after them. We learn it in verse 14, and then it's repeated in verse 15. Saul is searching for David. Now it must have struck David, and perhaps it has struck you. Why should David be on the run? He is aligned with God. He, the future king, has has the prophet and the priest with him. God, who will not speak to Saul, speaks to David. David has all this. He knows all this. Yet he lives in fear and he's on the run. He, He was so well on his way. His earlier experiences after the defeat of Goliath seem to be more in line with with a rational progression toward the fulfillment of that promise, that promise that Samuel had made to him, that God had made through Samuel to David, that he would be king. It seemed so rational that he would become a leader, that he would have victories, that he would become more and more elevated in the eyes of the people. But now this. And perhaps we can grasp a little of this in our own lives. When, when suffering occurs or when we experience setbacks. That, that feeling of, why is this happening? And as we can see from, from other verses in our text, David appears to be struggling with fear and with the certainty that God's promises would come true that he would become king. Yet at the same time, David's need was was unique. He wasn't simply dealing with the challenges that we face in our lives. He was God's man, chosen to be, be king of God's people Israel. He was standing not only at an important moment in his own life, he was standing at an important moment in the life of God's people. And this need was not the need for faith. David shows no signs of of weakening in his faith or in his commitment to the Lord. Just a few verses earlier, the the Lord and David are, are conversing. David is close to the Lord, even in his suffering. Now, the need here is, is of a different character. We must, we must think here of a being wearied or being worn down. David is, is standing at the, at the beginning of an intensification of his running from Saul. The heroic exploits that we remember Saul relieving himself in the same cave as, as David, David taking Saul's spear and water pitcher, and, and then David's time with the Philistines, all that is yet to come. 
David has a long and hard journey ahead of himself. Our minds may may jump ahead here and and think even of our Lord Jesus Christ on, on the Mount of Olives just before he was to undergo the betrayal of of Judas, the scattering of his disciples, Peter's disowning of him, and then his crucifixion and death. In Luke 22, verses 39 to 44, we read that, that Jesus was in prayer on the Mount of Olives. And then he says there, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will but your will be done. And this is where our Lord Jesus sweat those drops of blood in anguish, all while his disciples slept, unable to help him in his time of need. Our Lord Jesus was afraid. He was wearied. He was was worn. He was in need of strengthening. David points ahead to Christ here. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but David has no place to rest his head. The king has rejected him and seeks to kill him, and even among his own people and his own tribe, he cannot find safety and rest. David travels from place to place, always under the threat of Saul, the one who would be king of Israel, not received by Israel. We can understand David's humiliation and disappointment and and indeed his wearying. And it also points us towards and, and helps us understand perhaps a little more the humiliation and, and disappointment and wearying of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we too can begin to understand David's need because we too can feel this, this wearying. Perhaps we, we struggle to have faith. But more often, we may struggle in faith. That is, we believe. But the promises, they seem so far away. And that was David's struggle, and that was his fear. God's plan of redemption will always be resisted. Saul is not the only one who is opposed to God's unfolding plan of redemption. And that means that David, and even us today, we need to find strength in God. God knows his children. He cares for them. And he provides that strengthening. So let us now turn and, and look towards the means that the Lord used to strengthen David. Now, it is interesting that the strengthening for David does not come from the prophet or from the priest. Now, both are with David, or at least have access to him. The Lord has a number of different ways by which he can strengthen David. But he chooses another way, Jonathan. And the the words jump off the page at us. Jonathan and David have been reunited. It's a pleasant surprise. However, to fully appreciate Jonathan's presence, 
We need to ask why. Why did the Lord choose Jonathan as the means? What, what did Jonathan offer that the prophet and the priest did not? And there are two levels at which Jonathan is uniquely qualified for this task. Now the first level is his, is his personal relationship with David. He is David's friend. They are extremely close. And this relationship with David begins right after David defeats Goliath. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, we read that Jonathan and David became Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And then in verse 3, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now, this is not a simple friendship between two men who happen to get along. It is a deep friendship that is cemented with a covenant. And it involves a deep respect. This is the love that believers have for each other. And even the love that God has for us. A love that does not seek the self. Jonathan and David had a love that fulfilled the law. One that loved God and which loved the neighbor as oneself. In fact, you might say it better, Jonathan loved the Lord. And that meant that he loved David. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, lamented that, that this kind of love is, is absent or was absent in the society of his day. And that is surely true today. Love is either simple or it's sexual. But that, that higher love, that love between believers in Christ, that, that is absent. That is hard to find. And that is the love that David and Jonathan shared. It is a love that is completely bound up in their love for God. It is a love that we are called toward. The Lord Jesus says in, in John 13, 34, A new command I give you, love one another even as I have loved you. David and Jonathan had this love. Now this, this friendship is also interesting because of the age of Jonathan and David. Now, David at this time is probably about 20 years old. It's about the same age that Jonathan was when he climbed those cliffs with his armor bearer and defeated that Philistine outpost in 1 Samuel 14. Something which had happened some 20, maybe even 30 years earlier. Saul reigned for 40 years. The battle at Michmash happened probably around two years after Saul became king. And the events of our text are in the last ten years of Saul's reign. This was not a friendship between two young men who happened to get along real well. No, this was a relationship that shared many of the qualities of a father-son relationship. A relationship of love and respect. So in our text, when... When Jonathan comes to that forest hideout of David, he comes as an elder statesman. 
He comes as a respected and honored sponsor and defender of David. So when Jonathan comes to David, he brings the message of encouragement as one who is intimately close, not simply in an emotional or superficial way, but in a fundamental, solid, and even formalized way. And perhaps we we have those relationships in our lives. And if we do, we're blessed. Someone who, who goes out on a limb for you. Someone who, who tells you what you need to hear. A mentor. Someone you can look to for advice. Someone who can encourage you. All within the context of Christian love. That is, a love for God. They love God, and that means that they love you. This is someone who you listen to when they speak. Now, this is Jonathan for David on a personal level. Jonathan is about to speak, and David wants to listen. Yet there is, there is another level at which Jonathan is, is uniquely qualified to give this encouragement, and that is the level of office. And this speaks to what we call the historical redemptive uniqueness of the situation and the people involved. This, is, this speaks to this incredibly special time in the history of God's redemption and the incredible importance of people like Saul and Jonathan and David. Now, now we must understand here that according to the wisdom of the time, it was Jonathan who should have been hunting David, not Saul. Saul was getting old. Jonathan was the next in line. And Saul actually says it best in in 1 Samuel 20. Let's turn there. 1 Samuel 20, the verses 30 to 31. This is where David is, 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 is starting to suspect that Saul wants to kill him. Jonathan is, is, is defending David's absence. Jonathan is telling his father why, why David's not there. And then Saul's, verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Jonathan is an embarrassment. His actions go completely against conventional wisdom. Instead of trying to kill David, the threat to his throne, he is coming to encourage David, to help him find strength in God. It's incredible when you realize what Jonathan is doing. In our text, Saul and and Jonathan are, are closely identified. Three times, Jonathan is linked to his father. And yet they are so starkly contrasted. Saul seeks David's life, resisting God's plan of redemption. Jonathan helps David find strength in God and submits to God's plan of redemption. And Jonathan, in his office, in his position, has been doing this from the start. In verse verse 4 of 1 Samuel 18, 
we read some remarkable words. This is after David and Jonathan make a covenant. Where it says, Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. It's rather odd. The clothing and weapons of war of the crown prince have been given to the shepherd boy. Now some have gone so far as to suggest here that that Jonathan is here abdicating the throne, giving up any claims to the throne. And there is surely something here. Jonathan has given the clothing that identified him as the crown prince. He has given that to David. Jonathan immediately recognizes after the defeat of Goliath that there is something special from the Lord in David. And then in 1 Samuel 20, this is is deepened and broadened. Jonathan promises David that he will find out if Saul really wishes to kill David and and then later he helps David escape from Saul. Jonathan subjects himself to God's will, to God's man, to the one the Lord has anointed. And he not only moves out of the way, he paves the way. He is like John the Baptist, preparing the way for Christ, the anointed one. He is the one who says, I must diminish, he must increase. And again, our minds can drift here to Christ as he prayed in that garden in his hour of need. Christ did not have 600 men at his side. His men slept while he suffered. Christ did not have a Jonathan. He did not have a Jonathan, a trusted friend who who understood him and loved him and fully realized who he was and who he was to be. In Christ's hour of need, there was not a person on earth from whom he could receive strengthening. In Luke 22, verse 43, we are told that an angel had to be sent from heaven to strengthen Christ. So what a gift Jonathan's friendship was to David. What a beautiful Use of means by the Lord. Jonathan, whose name means gift of God. The presence of Jonathan would would have spoken volumes to David. Personally and in the context of God's plan of redemption. Jonathan, as a means of strengthening, could have strengthened David even if he could not speak even if he was too old or weary to walk. Beloved, we never have an excuse not to be a tool in the hands of the Lord. We never have an excuse not to be a means of strengthening our brothers and sisters. And that is what Jonathan is here. Even if Jonathan did not say a word. His very presence would deafen all the voices of doubt and and would have strengthened feeble knees. 
But he does speak. And that brings us to our final point, the content of the strengthening. Now the content of the strengthening revolves around certainty. The certainty of God's redemptive plan and his promises to David. Now the strengthening does not focus on the means. It doesn't focus on Jonathan. It focuses on God. The point of the strengthening was not to make David strong in himself, some sort of positive self-talk. No, it was to make him strong in his relationship with the Lord. It says there in our text, Jonathan helped David find strength in God. That means Jonathan helped him find strength in God, from God, with God. So whatever problems David had, he could withstand them with strength from God. And the content of the strengthening that comes from, from Jonathan by the means of Jonathan is then found in two different forms. The first form is his words. Jonathan begins with a command. He says, don't be afraid. And then he then qualifies the command with reasons. And the reasons echo and make more explicit what his very presence had already said. He says, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The central message in the text is you will be king over Israel. And I will be second to you. And then it's bracketed or enclosed by two statements about Saul. My father Saul won't lay a hand on you. And even my father Saul knows this. There is a certitude to Jonathan's words. The one you fear, Saul, he will not touch you. And he actually knows the truth himself. And incredibly, Saul himself says these exact same words. In 1 Samuel 24 verse 20. The truth is, David will be king, and Jonathan will submit to him. Jonathan is is saying, God's promise will not fail, and I will submit to you. So those two are, are held together, and they help David find strength in God. Now the second form of the strengthening is found immediately after Jonathan's words. In verse 18 we read, The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Now the question that immediately rises in our mind is, what are the terms of the covenant? What what exactly was being said in the covenant? Now we're not told in our text, but, but we can get a sense of what the covenant involved when we look at the other covenants or the other mentions of covenant that we have with Jonathan and David. And there are three instances. The first we already looked at, 1 Samuel 18.3. The next is in 1 Samuel 20, verse 16, and then we have the one in our text. Now, each one is made in the context of Jonathan affirming that David will be king. In 1 Samuel 18, when, where David receives the clothing and weapons of Jonathan, 
We see it. But the second is the one that is the fleshed out in most detail one. Now it's made in the context of David and Jonathan realizing that Saul is intent on killing David. And then Jonathan says there, 1 Samuel 20 verse verse 16, he asked David to show him unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. And a couple days later, 1 Samuel 20, 42, Jonathan reminds David of this covenant and he says, go in peace for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. It's fascinating when you look at it closely. The crown prince is formally with a covenant oath asking the hunted servant to protect him and his descendants, his family. Now the covenant made before the Lord in our text would then appear to be a renewal of that covenant. So not only does Jonathan bring strength in the form of words, assuring David that David would be king, he then follows up those words by by holding David to a covenant that is predicated, that is based on David and his descendants being kings. God's plan of redemption is certain. And it is so certain that Jonathan seeks his own safety, his own life, and the life of his children in that certainty. What a testimony to David. In the midst of all his trials, his fears, his weariness, his doubts, his doubts of whether or not God's promises to him would actually come to be. In the midst of all that, He hears these words and he sees that act. How he must have found strength in the Lord. Jonathan so strongly professes his faith in God's future for Israel that it must have made David weep. What a testimony to us. We hear this message today and it speaks not only to the friendship between believers whereby God strengthens his children in him, but it speaks to the certainty of God's redemptive promises, the certainty of God's plan of salvation in Christ, which also gives us strength in Him. With Jonathan, we can look to that descendant of David, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We can look to Him for our safety, for our life, and for the life of our children. Look to Christ and find life everlasting in Him. God has given us that firm promise in His Word. God's plans for us in Christ are true and certain. We can be certain that He will be faithful and that He will bring them to their fulfillment. We all have needs. We all have struggles. We, we all have times when the promises of the Lord seem so far away. 
And the Lord knows this. And he supplies what is needed. In his love for us, he provides the means and he provides the strengthening. He has done it in the past, he does it today, and he will do it in the future. Love the Lord. Trust his promises and the certainty of his redemptive plan in our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we, through the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, all help one another find strength in God to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let us now respond to the proclamation of God's word by singing hymn 48, the verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. And if you are able, please rise. <clears throat>